You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. We're happy to have on Preaching Source today Dr. Scott Gibson, who's the director of the Center for Preaching and a professor of preaching and ministry at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Dr. Gibson, happy to have you. Welcome to Preaching Source. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. You have recently written an article for us on the PreachingSource.com website about the importance of the main idea of a sermon. Would you give us some suggestions on how a pastor crafts a concise main idea that captures the, the text? Well, one of the things that we want to emphasize as preachers is that we're Bible people and that what we say is based on what the text says. And so uh, one of the important steps in moving towards a good, clear sermon that underscores the biblical text is to study it. <laughs> I wish I could put some cream on it or uh, some uh, uh, Hershey syrup, but uh, or maybe some uh, bluebell ice cream or something like that that would help to make that a little less of an arduous task, but it takes work. Understanding the background of the text, the historical, literary, uh, grammatical study, everything uh, that uh, bears upon good, clear preaching has to do with good, clear study, good, clear exegesis. And uh, one of the approaches that we can take is uh, asking a simple question that comes out of Haddon Robinson's homiletic, and that is, what is the author talking about? And that's the first question that we ask. Uh, maybe, uh, why does Paul tell the Ephesian or Philippian Christians uh, to rejoice always? In um, And uh, then the question is, because of what Christ has done for them, would be the complement answer to that, say. So you're trying to deal with the text in its context. We don't say, uh, uh, why does Paul... Paul tell us to be to rejoice always. We're moving ahead already then to preaching it. And that's one of the preacher's biggest mistakes is to skip over what the text is dealing with in its context. And so dealing with getting the idea of the text first is the preacher's task and then moving towards communicating that to one's listeners. Uh, so what we want to do is to study first and then, um, in a sense, apply later, uh, so that when we're wrestling with the text, we're in, in, in involved in trying to figure out what the author is talking about, and then being able to articulate that and then say, all right, what does this text say applicationally to my listeners today? S too often the preacher wants to apply something, find something to preach before he uh, is able to determine what the text says. And so I know it's a simple reminder, but it is, a, it is an important reminder that we wrestle with what the text has to say, get what the author is talking about, and then see how this applies to the listeners. And most every homiletics professor will tell that to any preacher, but I know what it's like being a pastor, and Sundays come very quickly, sometimes three days after the last Sunday, it seems, and you're always in search of a, um, 
a, an idea or a text to uh, communicate. And sometimes we get ahead of ourselves. So I guess the basic push is don't get ahead of the text, but put your head into the text so that you'll be able to preach the idea of the text. Dr. Gibson, you have written on the subject of preaching to a shifting culture. Would you talk with us a bit about how a pastor does that? How does biblical preaching, biblical exposition address a shifting culture? Well, one thing to remember is that, and John Stott tells us this in a, a number of his uh, writings, is that, that the Bible is always relevant. So that uh, we're not trying to find something that's relevant in the Bible. It's always relevant. But the question for us as expositors is, how can we expose this relevant text to a shifting culture, to a culture that keeps changing in the midst of a non-changing, truthful word? That means, of course, being able to understand the uh, biblical context, but also our preaching context, and being able to strategize by the help of God's Spirit to address that situation in the best way possible. There are a number of preachers who have done this over the years. You think about somebody like back in the 1970s, Josh McDowell, who, who uh, uh, preached evidence that demands a verdict. Uh, you know Ravi Zacharias, who, who uh, looks at the cultural types of approaches to preaching. Tim Keller in his assessment of, of preaching. But... Um, we have a responsibility to understand where we're preaching and how to approach it. Certainly, it deals with um, looking at the cultural context and the, the shifts that are taking place, whether it's political, sociological, um, moral shifts, and being able to say, what's the best approach to take? Uh, it might be in the way in which the sermon itself is shaped. Um, you think about... Um, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, in verse 36, he gets to the idea of the text. He doesn't state the idea of what he's getting at in terms of his sermon until the end. If he stated it at the beginning, it could have caused a riot. But he starts where they are, where his listeners are. He, he speaks about David and people whom they would have um, confidence in and, uh, and value. And he moves through there, and then he gets to verse 36, and he says, This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. Now, if he would have stated that at the beginning, there would have been a riot. But it, where he states it at the end, an inductively shaped approach, um, they're cut to the heart, and they um, ask how they might be able to be uh, forgiven. And that's the thing that, that preachers today want to think about. What's the cultural situation? What are the questions that the listeners have? What are the, um, in a sense, the mistakes that the listeners are making? What are the things that the listeners aren't getting? And then how can you shape the sermon in such a way that you're going to be able to get them where they are and where they need to be? And it might be that more now rather than previous, in our previous preaching, uh, that we're going to be raising questions that they have. We're going to be dealing with their uh, doubts and uh, their objections 
and dealing with their objections, and not in a, in a throwaway manner, but really wrestling with their questions, and then getting to the heart of the issue. So it may be that our preaching might become more and more inductive because it's taking them to where you want them to be and getting them more in a place to be able to hear it. And um, certainly, as, as, um, as we look at a, sh- a culture that continues to shift, when, when I uh, put that book together, uh, Preaching to a Shifting Culture, the culture has even shifted even more. But the principles are the same. Looking at the culture and then being able to uh, address the questions of the culture in such a way that the Bible is the answer for them. Dr. Gibson, I love the title of your recent book, Should We Use Someone Else's Sermon, Preaching in a Cut-and-Paste World. Uh, share with us just a few ideas you develop in that book about the problem of plagiarism. Well, what prompted all of this was uh, a, um, an increase of articles that I was seeing in the newspaper on the web of uh, preachers who were dismissed, caught, disciplined because of of plagiarism. And it seemed to me to be a a growing concern. And so I uh, explored the the issue of plagiarism in a number of ways, looking at it in terms of literature and other cultural kinds of um, 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 demonstrations. And then I looked at it in in terms of of, um, preachers and um, preaching. And uh, there is certainly a, um, uh, a grayness about uh, uh, plagiarism. Uh, the the uh, backlashes of comments that I've gotten have ranged from, well, all truth is God's truth, and so I'll use whatever I want to use, to um, um, how, how far can I go? That is, what's, what's the, the boundary here? And uh, it strikes me that both of those uh, positions are, uh, are not really the right question to ask. The, the, the question to ask ourselves as preachers is this. Are we using that which we have been exposed to, that is, our studies, our background, all of that, the, the education that we have, to the best of the ability that God has given to us. Uh, Jesus says, to the one much has been given, much is expected. And that, to me, is the gold standard of what it means to see if uh, one is plagiarizing or not. Uh, Because uh, one can use somebody else's sermon with one's permission. But if you use it as, uh, as if it were your own, um, it's, um, well, as uh, one uh, 19th century writer said, that's moral plagiarism, uh, because we are saying that some of these things that actually happen to us, that somebody else has said happened to him, uh, happened to us. H- how, how can we say it? So uh, after this book was published, uh, by the way, I, the title was not what I really wanted. Uh, I I, I can imagine a preacher looking at this, especially somebody who's not all that tempted by plagiarism or is actually tempted by plagiarism and looking at it and say, should we use someone else's sermon? Uh, 
Mm, no. Okay, I've read the book. That's, that's it. Um, well, I wanted uh, a little primer on pre- preaching and plagiarism so that it would help raise some questions about how this uh, very insidious uh, practice has leaked into uh, the church. And it's really because um, people have not been using the gifts that they've been uh, afforded. So the, the, the approach of Jesus to the one much has been given, much is expected, is really the, um, the way in which we can guard against plagiarism. And it is um, a, a problem. And I've, I've had, after the book has, had come out, uh, phone calls, emails uh, from churches um, asking me, how do we deal with this? And in the back of the book, one of the last chapters I deal with, how, how can churches um, move a preacher redemptively um, uh, to uh, a place where the preacher is actually practicing uh, preaching well without plagiarism. But I've also had uh, preachers call me, and uh, one in particular I can think of, I several, but one called me and really wanted me almost to absolve him. Here's what I did, but he didn't want to come to terms with the fact that he had um, lost the respect and trust of his congregation, and they had, uh, they had let him go. And he didn't want to come to terms with the fact that he had not been using his gifts well. To the one much has been given, much is expected. Pastors are uh, called upon as shepherds to both lead and feed their congregations, and among your scholarly interests are not just preaching, but pastoral ministry. How, how does a pastor, a preacher, effectively lead from the pulpit? One of my commitments is uh, discipleship. I come from a non-Christian home. And uh, I became a Christian through the ministry of a small country Baptist church. And this church took me in and nurtured me. They did the discipleship that they didn't even know they were doing. It was like the, the wool that was growing off of the back of the sheep. The sheep doesn't know the wool's growing, but these folks knew how to disciple, bring somebody into their lives and pour their lives into me. And it was incredible. And that has had a long-lasting impact on me, not only personally, which is something that I practice uh, with um, uh, discipleship, but also through the pulpit. That is, preaching is one avenue of discipleship that we haven't, often haven't thought about how to leverage. And uh, a, a book that I wrote is called uh, Preaching with a Plan, talks about strategies on how we can leverage our uh, preaching to move people from one level of spiritual maturity to the next. Now, of course, that doesn't happen in 30 days, like 30 days of wonder or 50 days of uh, maturity. It doesn't happen that way. As you all know, who listen, if you've pastored a church, you, you, you know that when you step into that uh, situation that that church is not like the church, perhaps, that you had pastored before that it is at a different level of spiritual maturity. And what the book does is I, I help the pastors and elders and deacons to, to assess where the church is and determine where the church is on a bell-shaped curve and say, all right, say that the, the, the church is at the level of a, of a child. Um, then, then what will it take in terms of planning the preaching to move that church to the next level of spiritual maturity, which would be an adolescent. 
And, uh, and so that can also help programmatically in the church on a broader scale by helping the uh, leaders of the church to see, all right, this is how we can leverage the, the, the women's ministry and the men's ministry and the Sunday school and what have you, small groups, so that we can move people towards maturity. Isn't that what uh, uh, Paul wants in Colossians 1.28, that, uh, that people are perfected, matured in Christ? And so um, that's one way that we can look at preaching, because Preaching isn't about us. Preaching's about the people who are before us and moving them towards the image of Christ. And I know there are, there are preachers who say, well, I want to preach through the entire Bible by the time I retire. Well, that's great. That's great for you, but it may not be appropriate for the congregation that you're serving. And so the challenge is, is to find out where they are and then be, being able to shape preaching that will help them move towards Christ's likeness, Christ's maturity. And uh, if we can do that, if we can get our brains wrapped around that, if we can help our leadership to, to see that, uh, then uh, we might have a m- more mature church. Because as a pastor, uh, the churches that I served tended to be much more down towards the child-infant side of things, even though they've been in existence for a hundred or plus years. And it's partly because we haven't really leveraged this incredible opportunity to move people to maturity through the preaching through the pulpit. Dr. Gibson, most pastors have some sense of the history and trends of preaching in their own denominations, their own tradition. Uh, You, however, have been a pretty keen student of evangelicalism uh, across the, the broad uh, theological and, and ecclesiastical landscape. Can you talk to us a bit about trends that you may have seen developing across evangelicalism as a whole when it comes to the pulpit? Well, one of the strengths of evangelicalism has been our commitment to the Scripture. Uh, it is foundational for us, and uh, that has really anchored uh, what we say and, and how we say it. And that's, that's the, the positive constant. The um, negative critique would be that evangelicals have tended to be ones who have been entranced by culture, particularly popular culture. You can see this in um, the late 19th century, the development of what became known as the institutional church, particularly in uh, um, the, the uh, 1890s, um, uh, there was a movement called the Institutional Church with people who were coming from more agrarian lifestyles to the city, and the cities were burgeoning at that time. And what do you do with all these uh, farm boys <laughs> who are coming into the cities and, and getting jobs? And uh, the churches developed uh, their own... Um, um, reading rooms and bowling alleys, and um, you have representatives of this throughout uh, that, that time period, um, and uh, they almost became like uh, their own YMCAs, and, uh, and they're preaching uh, uh, the, the gospel to them, but it was almost Martin Marty, the, the, the uh, historian at the University of Chicago, says that there is what he calls 
pissing. What he means by that is if you like an M&M has a hard shell on the outside and it's soft on the inside. And there's this sense where they're protecting themselves from the culture. So you've got this protectionistic approach to culture, and then you have this, in a sense, feeding into the culture. So you see the feeding into the culture of a, of a, um, of a, a prosperity gospel that had um, fed itself into some evangelical preaching. And uh, it was a tough and difficult uh, challenge. And, and you move into the 21st century, and uh, you do see some, some of these um, um, uh, episodes or exposures, photographs of, of this with um, churches that set up themselves and almost, almost are protectionistic. I mean, you saw, uh, to a certain extent, First Baptist Dallas had that same kind of thing. You had Willow Creek, who's had their own... Um, um, food core, everything there, right there. You know, everything's uh, almost carapacing, protecting ourselves from the culture. And yet then you have other kinds of, of um, approaches where there is this buying into the culture of preaching of prosperity. So um, that also talks about the different kinds of trends that uh, sometimes go un, um, unassessed. Uh, I, I st- I'm, I'm stepping on some, um, um, maybe some um, uh, toes here or, or uh, maybe walking on some light bulbs or what have you, but you think about um, what I, I, I've called the franchising of preaching, where uh, instead of, of um, planting a church, we now have campuses and we have images that are used. And it raises all kinds of questions about ecclesiology, uh, um, um, uh, worship. What what, do, what what are we doing here? And what does it say about um, us uh, leveraging our, ourselves, our personality, and the rise of the personality of the preacher? And and, and so so that does have an impact on uh, preaching, um, and it, it feeds into the populist approach to uh, preaching as well as a um, a commercial approach. That is, we're not spending as much money uh, by doing something like this. Well, I don't know. We might be spending our souls. I don't know. But it raises questions for us in a, in a, in a, in a, in a culture where we don't critically assess what we're doing and why we're doing it. And that has an impact on preaching. Bigger is not necessarily better. Um, and uh, I don't say that because I have any criticism or disdain or dislike for any of uh, the popular preachers that might be doing this, but it does raise questions for us um, in terms of the use of technology, and um, and and is it neutral? Um, what type of impact theologically does this have? And that's something that that preaching really we want to push ourselves to consider, because. Um, it's a never-ending development that uh, if we don't address things theologically, uh, we can lose our souls. And so preaching uh, is anchored to the Scriptures as evangelicals, but sometimes we're, we're uh, often blown by the winds of, of culture, in, in popular culture, in such a way that we maybe uh, are at risk of losing our bearings. 
Dr. Gibson, at Gordon-Conwell, you are the current holder of the Haddon W. Robinson Chair of Preaching and Ministry. Would you talk with us just a bit about the legacy that Haddon Robinson has left us in preaching ministry? Well, his legacy is immense, and uh, um, one of the great evangelical deans of homiletics. Um, his book, Biblical Preaching, has had an incredible impact on um, not only American seminaries, North American seminaries, but uh, preachers around the world. It's been translated into numerous languages. And his philosophy of preaching, of um, getting the idea of the text and communicating that idea of that text to one's listeners, is an incredible gift to preaching. It brought back to uh, preaching in the late 1970s when it was first uh, published, uh, 1980, 1979, 80, right there, where it brought back to a, 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 the attention of people who were teaching preaching that it's the Bible, and we're Bible people, and the sermons that we are to communicate are to arise from the Scriptures themselves. Robinson uh, is an incredible person. I, I had the privilege of working with him for about 22 years, and uh, it was a, a wonderful uh, privilege and, and ride, a man of, of great um, commitment to uh, preaching. He did everything in his power, uh, inconveniencing his time, um, uh, his resources, to be able to help the younger generation come to terms with the importance of good, clear biblical preaching. And so that's why the seminary... Uh, named this position that I hold in, in honor of him. That's why the seminary named the Center of Preaching after him, because of his incredible legacy. And uh, it is one that is going to have a long-term effect, not only because of his textbook, but his preaching, his um, commitment to this task of preaching. And uh, the, the many lives that he uh, um, worked with and had an impact on through his doctoral ministry program, um, it, it is legendary. And it was uh, a, a tremendous opportunity for me that has shaped me in ways that I cannot even articulate. Our guest on Preaching Source today has been Scott Gibson from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Dr. Gibson, thank you so much for being with us here on Preaching Source. My pleasure. Thank you.